want to ask uh, Robin and Danielle and Casey if they could join us up here. You made it. And Danielle made it. Yeah. Not happy about that. Yeah. Jared wasn't able to make us. Uh, they have a sick kid this morning. Um, but about six weeks ago, we asked you to give us some feedback on uh, these three um, outstanding people about um, as us putting them forward as deacons. Um, and we received many um, just good reports of how they have already cared for you as a family. And so we want to take this morning to, to install them as deacons of our church. And I want to, um, I want to read from from First Timothy, um, these are the qualifications of a deacon, um, but they're also the things that we uh, want you to learn from them. We want you to grow um, and have them teach you in these things, the same way that we as elders would want you to grow and, and imitate our lives. We want you to grow and imitate their lives in these things as well. And so I want to just read them from, for you so that you know what you need to grow in and what they would help you, help you grow in. Um, and then um, we'll share a little bit more, and then uh, we're going to pray for them. So First Timothy 3 says this, Deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They must be kept hold of the deep truths of faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. And those who have served will gain an excellent standing as they are ensured of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so there's, there's just these words in there that, that call us both men and women to walk in the ways and for, for us to, to be imitators of Christ as we imitate Christ and as you learn to imitate Christ ourselves. And so Brad's going to share a little bit about exactly kind of the roles they're going to fill. Yeah. Uh, uh, oh, I'm on. Am I? Yeah. So I just give you like nothing between us. Uh, so uh, Paul wrote that letter uh, to Timothy while he was starting out to, to lead this church in Ephesus. And he was given, uh, he was giving these instructions uh, to Timothy so that the church would thrive. Uh, all of the, the orders and the, the like, hey, do this, don't do that, all of it was about creating a church uh, in that city that would thrive where each member, each person in that body would be equipped and released and empowered and sent by the Spirit to proclaim the gospel in every action that they do and every word that they speak. And so when we appoint deacons, uh, Similarly to when we appoint elders, we're trying to uh, create that sort of trellis or that structure so that everyone here would thrive uh, and be equipped and sent out to speak the gospel in every moment uh, that, we've, that we've been given. Uh, and so that's, that's really why uh, we took a ton of time praying about who we should appoint. Also, this isn't going to be the last time we ever appoint uh, deacons, and, it, and it's not also like a, an election cycle, so we're not born uh, or burdened by, you know, whatever, two-year, three-year, four-year kind of thing. Uh, they're going to serve as long as they have capacity to and as long as they're empowered to do so. Uh, and so we took a lot of time praying and thinking about 
what God's already doing and what roles we already see uh, and gifts we've already seen God give our church. And so then we kind of uh, saw these people to a point. And so uh, I'll start with Casey, because right to left makes sense for me, but it's, anyway, left to right for you. Uh <laughs> Uh, Casey, we're, uh, he's been, since he's been back from New York, uh, he's been caring so much for men in this body and, and always even bringing uh, concerns to us as elders, uh, like kind of being like, when and why don't we have a men's retreat anymore? Like, why don't we like invest and pour into men's DNA groups? What, like, what, what should we be doing that could be even better? Uh, and so uh, as we were praying, it just made a lot of sense to a point uh, Casey to be a deacon over over that, like men's uh, DNA groups and discipleship, and he's going to lead a team of people that do that, and we feel like he meets all of those qualifications, and you guys do too, or at least no one said otherwise. Uh, so by your silence, you know, whatever that quote is. Um, it's golden. It's golden. Your silence is golden. Yeah, it is. Uh, and then uh, Robin has actually been functioning in this way for many years. Uh, so she's been uh, keeping track of women DNA groups and helping organize and make sure that, that the team of ladies that are planning these events to help uh, communities and disciples grow, uh, including the retreat, she's been like the, the champion for that. And so it just made that was, uh, Robin was the easiest to, to think about uh, because it was like, wow, she's done this for, for so, so long. And so she's going to continue to do that, I think, even now with some like renewed like energy and empowerment of like, no, like let's really invest in developing the leaders of DNA groups, which is really exciting. And then uh, Danielle here uh, has, it was also very similar of like, wow, she's already helping this, the worship directors and all the musicians uh, kind of live out the vision of the church as we gather each Sunday to worship. Uh, and so she's going to continue to help uh, coach and mentor and help uh, facilitate the, the team of worship directors, uh, which she does really well with amazing meals at her house. I get to go with them and uh, good wine that Joshua picks out. Um, and he cooks too with parchment paper. Uh, anyway, so uh, that's... Uh, that's the roles that they're going to be filling. Uh, obviously, there are many roles that we could uh, put any of these people in because they're such uh, reliable, faithful, uh, available kind of leaders. Uh, and they're already serving in so many ways in our church. And this is just one of the ways that they will serve um, alongside missional community leaders who are still continually tasked with the day-in, day-out functions of uh, seeing communities grow and their love for Jesus, growing their love for their neighbors, growing their love for God uh, and for one another. Uh, and so they're going to come alongside them and help them even flourish more. So that's, uh, I'm excited to appoint them now. Yeah. So you want to pray for them? Yeah, you guys get in the middle more. Actually, if there's uh, MC leaders, if you guys want to come up, we'll lay hands on them as well, and um, we'll pray for them. So if you're an MC leader and you're here, you can join us on the stage. Why don't you guys get together in the middle? <laughs> Yeah, we'll huddle around. It's a holy huddle. (laughs) Father, we thank you that we get to serve you. We thank you that you allow us to participate in what you're doing in this city. 
Father, we do pray for Casey and Danielle and for Robin. Father, pray that you um, would give them great strength and power. Father, pray that you would give them great wisdom to lead. Father, pray that you would make them chief servants. Father, we, we know that that is our role, is to serve. And so, Father, we thank you that um, we get to lead other servants to, to serve as well. So, Father, we pray that you um, would give them great power and grace to do those things. Father, pray that you um, would grow us as a church um, because you have appointed them, and because you are leading them, and because they are following you. And so, Father, we pray that you would grow each one of us, that you would disciple us, that you would mold us into your image um, as we are led uh, by this team and so of deacons. And so, Father, we thank you that... Um, that we get to appoint them today. We thank you that we get to celebrate what you're doing in the life of our family. And we thank you that you ultimately will get more glory for that in the city. And so, Father, we pray that that would be, uh, be seen, that um, we wouldn't see uh, anyone here on stage, but that we would actually see you. And so, Father, we ask that they um, would guide us in pointing uh, us to you. And so, Father, we thank you this, for that this morning. We pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Great. Uh, well, my name is Brad. Uh, I always write that in my notes so I don't forget. Uh, and I am one of the pastors here. And uh, this morning, we're going to continue our series talking about uh, our culture and how Jesus re- re- restores, makes new uh, everything about our lives and our world. And today I'm specifically going to be talking about sex, uh, which is a great topic. So you've been, you've been warned, um, this, is a, this is a sex talk. Uh, the, <clears throat> the last time I, I gave a sex talk was uh, last summer. I spoke at a camp uh, for high school students. Uh, it's a really cool camp. They go kayaking down this river, the Illinois River, that's located in Oklahoma. And uh, I, the day before I flew out to, to speak at this camp, uh, the youth minister called me and let me know that two of the pastors had had an affair uh, with each other. And so I was uh, being invited to now uh, change what I was going to talk about. And they asked me, to come and, and speak to uh, sexuality and uh, confession and repentance and healing and, and all of that. And this was a, a youth group that I'd actually spent a couple camps with already. And I think it was, uh, for me at least, a, a sort of surreal experience because uh, I was a youth minister once long ago, uh, just like Trip, but not as long as Trip was. That's why I have more hair. Uh, but it... It was this group uh, I'd gotten to know over the years. And uh, I knew that this was not their first encounter with the brokenness of, of human relationships expressed in their sexuality uh, and their offenses towards like one another. Uh, this wasn't the first time they felt betrayed. Uh, this wasn't the first time they'd felt abused. It wasn't the first time they felt neglected. Um, and, and so I, I gave um, a, a talk about sex, uh, so much that I will uh, basically repeat it today. Um, and, and I'm really excited to. Uh, I think that uh, 
if, if children by the age of 15 can already be completely uh, connected with the reality of we are not who we were created to be, uh, and that, that those around us both abuse us uh, and we've abused others. If, if a 15-year-old can already know that viscerally themselves, uh, how much more so do we know that and understand that? Uh, how, much, how many more uh, experiences do we have? And I think that uh, the Bible is pretty amazing because it acknowledges that reality. Uh, the Bible talks about sex early and often, uh, to the point that they actually, the, the writers created all of these beautiful uh, descriptions of what sex is. Uh, they, they have all these cool euphemisms, we might call them now, but I think they're kind of beautiful realities of like, uh, a man and a woman must uh, cleave to one another, you know? It's like, that's quite an image. Uh, there's an entire book written about uh, two mates pursuing one another. Uh, it's the Song of Solomon, which today's passage is not going to be. Uh, but the Bible talks also uh, about redemption and restoration of our whole selves. And it doesn't just talk about sex as some sort of problem. Uh, the Bible is actually incredibly pro-sex, uh, very, very in favor of it, from the very first chapter uh, on through the end. That, that we uh, would experience and know uh, the truth about God, and we would experience worship and joy and relational union through this thing that God created and gifted to us. Uh, and so I think that the gospel provides for us an incredible uh, apologetic to our times, um, where we find ourselves daily, weekly, uh, annually confronted with the brokenness uh, that we face, and the gospel provides healing. And so today we're going to read Romans chapter 1, and I'm going to read from verse 18 to 32 in the beginning, uh, and then we're going to dive right in. Uh, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. I uh, tried to use that on my children this last week, and it, didn't, it wasn't as cool of a line. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations with those that are contrary to nature. 
And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's God's word. I want to start with sex as it should be. Uh, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created man and he created woman, and he said, this is very, very good. Uh, In the beginning, uh, Adam sees Eve, and he says, this is bone of my bone, this is flesh of my flesh, and he's incredibly uh, enamored with her, and she's completely enamored with him. God even gives them this decree to be, uh, to be with one another and to multiply, to be fruitful with their lives. That their relationship with one another would fill the earth with other people that look like God and image God and reflect his character and all of those things. Uh, in the beginning, uh, he, he describes that this is flesh of my flesh, and, and even Moses writes this little parenthetical statement that says, this is why a man should leave his mother and father and be one with his wife. Like, this is why. Because they were, they were made for this. They were made to be together and have this incredible uh, relationship expressed through their sexuality. In the garden, they're yielding to one another. Uh, in the garden, uh, they encounter the other. Another person that has a will, who has desires, who has a personality, a face, a body, and a mind that's completely other, who's not them, who who doesn't think as they think, who doesn't have the desires that they have, and they've they've been given each other like that to pursue and to be with. They're both giving and satisfying and admiring each other. They know one another, and they feel known. Intrinsic to what makes you you, like a a human, is that you have a personality, passions, will, desires, all of those things, a soul, but also a body. Uh, Death Cab for Cutie, it's a band that's very popular among people that graduated high school in 2004. Uh, they, they have a song and they describe sex this way when soul meets body a lot of, a lot of people are like yeah uh, but that's how we're created and that's what sex is it's love uh, that's not just words but love that's been put into flesh 
into uh, bodies. It's expressed. It's, it's this act of complete union. In the beginning, God created man and woman, told them to have sex, and said that it was very good. This is, an, this is a good sex life, like what's described here. Uh, it's actually, I think it's what the sex life that everybody, everybody wants. Where you and this other person are loyal and faithful to one another and give themselves up. Paul later in Ephesians uh, chapter 5, when he's describing uh, husbands and wives, describes husbands laying down all of their desires, all of their wants for the sake of their wife, and the wife doing the same back to the husband. That's like sex gone right. But then in Genesis chapter 3, they exchange knowing God and the truth about God for a lie. Uh, they, they decide, well, I might know the divine nature of God, as Paul describes in Romans 1. I might know the very attributes of him who created us, but I would rather not know you. As he says, claiming to be wise, we could know good and evil for ourselves. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. And the result of this rebelling against God, rebelling against the living God who created them and put them in this place and gave them everything they would ever need, including himself, the result of that rebellion is complete uh, catastrophe. Sexuality then gets to be used as a sign of our rejection of knowing God. Our rejection of knowing the truth. Our, our desire to live in a lie. What Paul is, is describing here in Romans 1 is a broken mind. A broken heart. A broken body. And he's not uh, singling out just any particular group. He's telling the whole story of all, uh, of all humanity. This is what we've done. This is who we've become. I think it's fascinating that he, he zeroes in on sexuality as he calls the whole of humanity unrighteous uh, with minds that are broken. Minds that have been perverted and twisted that aren't functioning correctly. He later on says in this book, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Genesis 3 starts something uh, that, that really goes off the rails. And there's a way to look at it about violence, which we'll do in a few weeks. We can talk about it with gender, which we did last week. Uh, all of the ways. But, but from Genesis 3 on, uh, just particularly with sexuality and people having sex with one another, it completely goes off the rail. And it's one of the things that makes the Bible so weird as far as like sacred, holy books. Because from Genesis 3 on, it begins to talk about rape and incest and assault and betrayal and pornography. Even David sitting on top of of his own castle, staring at a naked woman that is not his wife. It talks about kings and, and powerful men just having huge hordes of women that they just use. 
even use other people so that they can have children uh, and continue their line and all sorts of craziness. One of the, the main occurring things throughout the Old Testament, if you've ever read it, you'll see over and over again it seems like God's really obsessed with these things called the Asherah. Does anyone bail in Asherah? Do y'all? That comes up a lot if you read 1st, 2nd Kings or 1st, 2nd Samuel, that sort of thing. Some people are nodding. Uh, the Asherah were these, uh, these temples in the woods, uh, up on the hills. Uh, Israel is a hilly, hilly land. And up on top of these hills, uh, they would carve down the trunks of these trees and make for them symbols of sexuality, of, of um, penises. And there, uh, they had all these uh, goddesses and priestesses who were up there to, uh, to have sex with men who would come and pay money as they worshipped the gods hoping that, that through that they would gain some significance because they would have you know, better fertility with their actual spouses. And the people of Israel never tore them down. They were always up there. Always a sign. Even in the, in the Psalms, uh, David will write often, I don't look my eyes up to the hills. Or I don't look to the hills for, for hope. He's saying, I don't look to sexuality for hope. I don't look to abusing other people for hope. That's the Old Testament. Something has gone wrong. As it says in verse 26, he says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity. This is also... Uh, what we see today. It's kind of strange, right? The Old Testament's like, we didn't evolve. Have we evolved much? Uh, because today, it's, if you have, the more sexual partners you have, the more important you are. The more powerful you are, right? I mean, that's what I learned in high school. Anyone else learned that in high school? And then I heard the song by Death Cab for Cutie, and I, it all made sense. What we learn in the news about the, the latest famous person, right? Doing something awful and horrid. Uh, isn't like the epidemic itself. Like, oh, famous people are really messed up. Uh, no, it just reveals the epidemic, right? It's not an issue with Hollywood in any sort of special way. It's not even an issue with our times in some sort of special way. It's like an issue with all of us. Instead of a gift, sex becomes a sledgehammer that we use on other souls, even our own. And in response to that, uh, we kind of have a few weird ideas on what sex is. Uh, sex could be personhood, right? Your sexuality makes you who you are. Uh, it's your identity. And that's all your identity ever could be. Who you're attracted to, who you're having sex with, defines you as a person. Sex is as personhood. Or sex is often uh, a connection, right? 
that, that through sex we can be connected to another being and somehow have some semblance of a relationship. However deep or however long that might last, through it we somehow feel known or knowable, right? Sex is what you do to feel loved or feel validated. It's what the Beatles meant when they said, love is all you need, right? If we could just have sex, then I would know that I'm loved and I'm lovable and I'm approvable. Also, sex is power. A way to dominate and have force over another. Sex is control, something that we can use withholding and giving, extending, and uh, with innuendos and, and touching and all of these things. We can control the people around us to get what we want. Sex purely just as pleasure. You know, we're just animals that have desires and cravings. So just fill those cravings. Fill those carnal desires. But there's also, and this might be very popular in this room, I'm not sure, uh, the youth group I talked to, there was a handful of homeschool kids and that was really popular with them as we talked afterwards. Uh, sex is pride in our purity. I've looked at sex, I've found that it's awful, it's gross, it's dirty, and so I've restrained myself. Making myself better and more wise than all the others. I've arrived. I don't do those sorts of things. I'm clean. A different way of destroying the gift that God's given us. But ultimately, as Paul writes here, we use sex as proof that we don't want God. And we don't trust Him. And this, all, by the way, all of these things applies as much to people who are married as people who aren't. There's this really cool myth that when you get married, your sexuality becomes perfect. I guess I'm evidence that that's not true. These are the things that we actually lust for. When Paul, when Paul says, he gave them up to the lust of their hearts. He's talking about these things. These are the things we lust for. To be known, to feel loved, to have control, to have power, to have pride. That's what we want, and we will use sex to get it. Ultimately, what Ephesians 1 says is, or Romans 1 says is, what we think and how we act in regards to sex reveals what we believe about who we are and who God created us to be and how trustworthy He really is. It tells us what we think about Him. He goes on, uh, as I read before, uh, as the room got more tense. He describes the stuff of fallen humanity, of a fallen sexuality. He describes what the results of this brokenness actually are. In verse 28, he says, Since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Gave them up to a mind that was created for one purpose, but now uh, completely off track. Debased of, of like lowering who we actually are. This is what's fascinating, though. The list that he goes on 
from there basically just describes uh, something kind of crazy. Envy, strife. We take our anger out on others. We envy others. Deceit. Both the hiding and the lying. Born out of this like unholy expression of God's not worthy, so I will do the lusts that I desire. Maliciousness, gossip, slanders, inventors of evil. That one's kind of crazy, right? We invent new evil. Yeah, I don't know, like, your stories very much at all. But I do know that when someone is abused, it feels like someone just invented a whole new kind of evil to lay out on them. Heartless, ruthless. I think what's amazing is a lot of those things that are just described could be on the headlines of so many of the Me Too uh, scandals that happen on a weekly basis. Like, this heartless man did something. Ruthlessly, right? It kind of describes R. Kelly's whole thing, right? What, that whole chapter, or paragraph, that's like his life on display. But it's also our lives on display, too. I read this and I always think, wow, how far from the garden have we come? Often our solution to this problem is uh, just experience what you desire. Say yes as much as you can because you'll feel shame and guilt if you pursue anything else. Uh, our our cultural moment, which isn't very different than the ancient Greek or Roman culture, which was, just go do whatever you want to. It's your body. It's your, it's your possession. You just do what you would like. But today, if you mess up, though, if you go past whatever invisible boundary line there is, in a culture that says, you know, sex is money, power, influence, everything, you are your sexuality, says, but if you go too far or do something that someone doesn't like, then you deserve to die. Or at least be removed completely from human consciousness, which I think is, is death, right? And this is what's crazy, is I think the Bible and our culture somehow overlaps at that point. It's like, these people really do deserve to die for what they've done, for what they've done to others how they've broken others. The Bible, though, just says that's all of us. But then there's also Jesus comes to the story. It's always good when Jesus comes to the story. The story is different. Jesus comes uh, born and raised by a, uh, by a woman who everyone that he was around in that village had to have assumed he was someone or she was someone who went and had sex with somebody else, and that's how he came about. As Jesus enters the scene, uh, we see that he looks to and welcomes, even embraces, touches the broken and the ones doing the breaking. And I don't want anyone to miss this incredible truth. Jesus looks to and embraces 
the broken ones. And the ones that do all of the breaking as well. He has uh, this chat with the woman at the well who had been uh, used uh, by men and she had also used sex to gain uh, security in her own life. Mary Magdalene is one of the more famous people that Jesus interacts with who became a leader in the church, uh, an amazing uh, disciple. She washes Jesus' feet as a known prostitute weeping uh, at his feet. And Jesus says, no one will do anything better for me than what she's doing right now. Then there's also the adulterous woman who uh, may or may not have been Mary Magdalene. I don't really know or have any, I I don't know, I don't care. But I I care about her as a woman. Um, (laughs) If you know this story, there's all of these uh, religious people are standing around this woman who's just been caught in adultery. She'd probably been set up. And they're about to stone her to death. And then Jesus walks out and he says, if you have, whoever's uh, not sinned, you can throw a stone. It's one of the the great stories of Jesus. We we use it all the time. We love it uh, outside of this group even, right? What's amazing is uh, if you look up the list of things that uh, you could be, you know, stoned to death for, there, there's a lot, many, most, are all about uh, sexual sins and impurity. And when Jesus says, if you haven't sinned, you throw a stone at this lady, he's implying also, if you haven't sinned sexually, you throw a stone. And they all drop their stones. Jesus stands and defends and calls out, the broken and the breaking. He also stands up in one of his sermons and he says, even if you've looked at a woman the wrong way, with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. An act, by the way, where you should be stoned and put to death. But Jesus uh, changes everything in the cross, in his life, in his resurrection. And just uh, another side note, uh, many of you might, even hearing those stories, be overcome with all sorts of shame, right? Shame and conviction are really interesting differences because some of you also might be feeling convicted, like uh, a conviction in your hearts. Shame always leads to hiding. Like, I don't want anyone to know this. I don't want anyone to know what's been done to me or what I've done to others. But conviction actually leads to confession. When the Spirit of God convicts you of sin, you actually tell people about it. Because you know that the Spirit brought it to you so you can obviously share it. Shame results in isolation. I should separate myself from others. Even the people that I love the most, like my family, my my, uh, parents, my spouse... Conviction, though, leads to a boasting in the grace of God. Conviction comes from God's pursuit of you. God coming to you. One of the greatest signs of God's love for you is that he comes to you and says, this isn't what I made you for. 
But shame comes from your removal from God Himself. While shame is condemning, is condemnation that would require some sort of self-justification. You know, like, I need to tell people why this happened or why I did these things. Now I can prove myself. Conviction is actually an invitation to be healed. But Jesus on the cross, Jesus in the tomb, Jesus raised to life, he creates a new humanity on this earth. He restores people. He gives everyone that he saves, he says, you have a completely new identity. You're a completely new person. Your personhood comes from what I've done and how I feel about you. It doesn't come from what you've done or what you feel about other people or who you're attracted to. Your identity only comes from me. He also comes and he says, I know you. And you're known by me. He comes and he says, there's no greater evidence of God's love than me on a cross. Christ gives anyone who follows him power, not not power to control or manipulate, but the power to be raised from the dead. To surrender control to the one who made all of this stuff. Rather than being served by creatures, rather than giving yourself up to the worship of creatures, you now are free to worship the Creator. Union with God. Nothing separating, nothing keeping you away. God with you, God for you. God saying, there's nothing that could ever separate me from my love and from you. Joy, purity, wholeness. The whole book of Romans actually outlines how because of the gospel of Jesus, we're actually made right even though we're all wrong. Even though we're all messed up or broken and unrighteous, unworthy, we've been made right because Jesus is worthy and he gave that to us. His worthiness, his wholeness, his healing, he just gives to us. That's why uh, Romans 1.16, which I didn't read in the beginning, but I'll read now, Paul says this, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The good news of the gospel is you've been made right and you've been made saved. That's why we're not ashamed of this stuff. Why? Because the greatest problems happening in your life and the most deep-rooted abuses and sins you've ever experienced or done to others, the gospel is the good news that saves you from that. It's the very power of God to make you well. The New Testament describes a life of Churches filled with people who are really messed up. Like, uh, yeah, there's all sorts of churches with scandals. Um, everyone who says, I just want to do what the early church did. It's like, oh, you want to live in a bunch of scandal. I think we should, <laughs> we should maybe shoot higher. Uh, <laughs> but the New Testament then describes that if God has done this for us, if he says, I come to make you righteous, the, the actions of Jesus, his life, his death, and resurrection are the power of God to save you and make you whole and make you right, then live like it. Or as Peter says, you are made holy, so be holy. 
You've, you've been healed, so lived a healed life. You've been brought into the presence of God. You've been brought into the story of God, union, grace, all of this stuff that you've been given, so live like it. Be like it. Both in, in abstinence and in marriage, being patient with one another, uh, being selfless in our love for one another, worshiping God when we're with one another in sex. The, the whole New Testament sexual ethic is uh, very strange. It was strange then, it's strange now to the people around us. Like, why wouldn't you just fulfill your desires? Why wouldn't you just use this thing to control and manipulate? Why wouldn't you just use this thing to sell, you know, more diet Sprite or whatever it is? Uh, it's an ethic that says, no, the way I get to live out the most intimate parts of me, tell the world what God is actually like. And the way that, that we yield and come to and woo and pursue and sleep with our spouses is the, is tells the world, even though it's in hopefully a private place, um, at least that's my preference, you do you, uh, that... Uh, that we tell the world the pursuit and the love and the selflessness of Jesus himself. And the way that we respond to people in their brokenness. And our, when our spouses fail and break and whatever uh, confession that might come. And the way that we are, are somehow able to extend forgiveness and solidarity and love for our spouse is also a picture of the grace of God. I think it, uh, we're now at the point where we get to talk about temptation. Because all of that is good and fine, right? Everything I've described makes tons of sense, I think. I think it makes sense. That's why I said it. Um, but what about this temptation to not do? Or as Paul later describes, do what I don't want to do. And I don't do what I want to do. That's temptation in a nutshell. I want you to know that you're loved before you obey. You are loved when you're broken. You're loved when you break. But you've also been given the power that rose Jesus from the dead and the power to say no. Power to say no to other people. It's the power to say no to yourself, and the power to also receive the love of God. And that's the power of the gospel that we're not ashamed of. So in speaking the truth about what's happening and going on in your life, you bring light to something. That's why confession is always this great thing. You confess not to be made well, but you confess because God. Because you believe God. You think he's trustworthy. You acknowledge him as the one who created you and who you are. But also with confession and with speaking the truth to one another, we also embark on this endurance. That God is making his home in you. Uh, I'm almost done remodeling my house. I only have like a hundred more things to do. 
You know, it's like so close. But every day I leave the house with a longer list than when I went there to fix it up. Tripp's house is also further away from being done than when he moved in. God is making his home in you. So boast in Christ's power to inhabit you. That Christ sees all of the unfinished work and says, I will become embodied in that person. And know also that this is a momentary struggle. One of my favorite books on this topic is by a lady named Jackie Hill Perry. She's amazing. You should look her up. Uh, I got to interview her a few months ago, and we started talking about temptation. And she was like, yeah, I have to live my whole life with all these temptations. And, and she described it in her book. There's a chapter, it's chapter 7, on temptation. It's incredible. And so I was like, tell me more about that. Like, what's the secret sauce for temptation? And she kept talking about Jesus and all these things. And I was like, that's really frustrating. But then she said something that I won't, like, forget. And you can listen to it. It's recorded. It's on the internet. But uh, she says, uh, the thing is, Brad, I probably only have, at most, 60 years on this earth fighting this temptation, and then I have an eternity without it. This is a momentary struggle. This is like a momentary fight. At most, you have 60 years unless they totally figure out how to make us live 130 years, which doesn't sound like a good idea. (laughs) It's a momentary struggle. So, yeah, we are broken and whole in Christ. As we're about to go and take communion, and it's bodies, it's Christ's body broken for you, like this bread torn in half. Christ breaking for our putting back together again. Uh, Something my children love to do is take bites of bread and apples and toast and then put them back together and then to have us guess, is this this broken or not? Super weird. Uh, And then we're always like, no, it really is broken. But the other day, they were doing this a lot with cheese, which is like, it's in your mouth. Anyway, uh, it's like the wet cheese is, is broken. Um, but I think uh, that's so much us all the time. Like we just want to dress up, pretend, especially within the church where we know there's this, this call to holiness to say, yes, we're broken, but maybe I can put these two pieces of bread back together and hold it up as if I'm whole just on my own. As we celebrate communion, as we sing from now on today, I want us to boast in the fact that we are broken, but we have these incredibly truths before us. Yes, you are a mess, but you are deeply loved by the God who created everything, and he pursued a restoration of the most intimate parts of your life from the very foundations of the world. You are not an afterthought, and the gospel is the power of God to save Everyone from everything. I want to end with this quote from Jackie Hill Perry uh, that I think is just amazing about the freedom that we have in Christ and the power of God to save. She says, When salvation has taken place in the life of someone under the sovereign hand of God, 
They are set free from the penalty of sin and its power. In a body without the Spirit, sin is an unshakable king, under whose dominion no man can flee. The entire body, with its members, affections, and mind, all willfully submit themselves to sin's rule. But when the Spirit of God takes back the body that he created for himself, he sets it free from the pathetic masters that once held it captive and releases it into the marvelous light of its Savior. It is then able to not only want God, but it is actually able to obey God. And this is what freedom is supposed to be. The ability not to do as I please, but the power to do what is pleasing. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray for a freedom like that. A a freedom to do what is pleasing to you, God. A freedom and a power uh, to find our identity in you. Uh, God, I pray for us as a body um, that we would be able to engage whatever future conversations might take place today or the, this week, um, that, that we would have, uh, yeah, sweet confessions and boasting in your grace, that we would uh, receive and know that we're loved by you. God, I pray too that your salvation would be something that we are not ashamed of, but that we would boast in it in every temptation, and every struggle. And that we would be known as a people in this city that, uh, that holds a mirror up to the city and those around us and says, you are deeply loved even though you're broken in all the places that I am also broken. Jesus, your grace is so wonderful and it is enough for us. And then we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.